0: Welcome to the SENDcast. My name is Dale Pickles, and I'm the host of the SENDcast. The SENDcast concept started a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. Everyone working in schools needs training and support around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. We created the SENDcast to try and help solve that problem, to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND, and to help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast we have a different guest on that I've invited to come along and talk about something they are passionate about. My guests this week are Claire Ward and Dr. Jamie Galpin. Claire has worked in the world of SEM for the last 30 years in a variety of roles and Jamie also has a long career in SEM. They have both come along to talk about how do you become an expert in every area of SEND? Is it even possible? The SENDcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared and over the last 25 years, B-Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we have focused on assessment and this will always be our main focus. But we've seen a lack of high quality, easy to access training and CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences, and designed not just for the SEND code, but for all teachers. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing how do you become an expert in every area of SEND? Is it even possible? My guests this week are Claire Ward and Dr. James Galpin. Claire has worked in the world of SEN for the last 30 years in a variety of roles, including a TA, speech and language therapist, social worker, and NHS manager. Jamie also has a long career in SEN, starting as a TA, has a Masters in Child Development, and a PhD in Developmental Psychology. Claire and Jamie met when they worked for the same multidisciplinary outreach support service in Inner London. Welcome to the show, Claire and Jamie. Hello. Hello, great to be here. Excellent. I said we're discussing how do you become an expert in every area of SEND and is it even possible? And the answer is you can't be an expert in every area of SEND, can you? It's a
1: sort of great question. And certainly, if you were to look at the current SEN landscape and the sort of proliferation of acronyms that we've seen uh, increase in that field. It would certainly seem an unachievable task that you can't kind of sit here and kind of become an expert in every single one of those different acronyms. Um, but I think the sort of question points to a kind of broader issue around SEN. And that's that kind of almost that shift that we've got to focusing on a need for a diagnosis and potentially away from this fundamental skill that actually we can all get better at and be really good at, which is diagnosing need. So, we have seen a greater increase in terms of understanding of SEN, and that's fantastic. Um, And that's brought with it a kind of proliferation, as it were, of CPDL around different areas of need. But with that, just the presence of that kind of training around all of those individual acronyms almost suggests that you need expertise in that area. You need to go on this course to understand this. You need to go on this course to understand this. And what they can actually do is sort of alienate teachers from their sense of being able to relate to a student. That student is sort of uh, made to seem extraordinary, uh, is lying outside of the remit of what I can manage as a teacher. You know, just the presence of experts Implies the necessity to have some expertise, um, and I, I think we've also potentially seen a kind of reemergence, almost by accident, of a kind of medical model of looking at difference. So more of a focus on on looking at kind of deficits. We've certainly had a kind of bleeding into education of more um, psychomedical focused language um there um and i think we now have a real kind of siloing of students that we have you know SEN conceived of in terms of these discrete diagnostic categories so you know adhd dyslexia autism and so on and with that there's an implication that teaching staff are expected to have specific theoretical and increasingly as i said kind of neuropsychological knowledge about that growing set of categories in order to be able to effectively support their students. And more often than not, a lot of that kind of work tends to focus on deficits and disorders. It tends to kind of focus on, on where are the shortcomings that this child has that we need to address in order to push them towards the kind of mainstream outcomes that are currently considered to be desirable. So if we were to look at it from that sense, then I don't think anybody has the time to be able to attend a dedicated course on every single acronym that's out there, but a lot of our work focuses instead on looking at universals I was saying, okay, Yes, there are these, lots of these different labels, and, and yes, you know, they can bring with them benefits. But the biggest kind of risk with those diagnoses is we move away from those kind of human universals. We overly pathologize children and young people, so seeing them as psychologically abnormal, and again, that point of being kind of completely different to us. Whereas focusing on those kind of universal needs can be much more empowering uh, for teaching professionals because we can realize, okay, that falls into the remit of kind of being a human and I'm a human. So I've got a chance of understanding another human. Uh, and really, that's the kind of focus that in our practice uh, is a lot of what we kind of try and drive towards, of bringing everything back into that universal and, you know, the kind of, uh, long-winded way of describing that is we tend to look at what are known as transdiagnostic factors. So that's a kind of fancy way of just saying universal or human factors. Yes,
2: I'm working with like three or four families, children and families at the moment who are sort of skirting around this issue of diagnosis. And I've seen one have a really positive experience and she came in a big smile on her face and said, I got my autism diagnosis. And for her, it was a really positive thing. And then this morning, I had an email from a Senko. sent it on from a parent, who said that um, they'd felt really let down in terms of what had happened post-diagnosis. So their daughter got a, a diagnosis of dyslexia, having been, she'd moved from another school. She'd been really bullied. She felt, you know, the whole, not I'm not good enough thing. She got this diagnosis and she'd been really disappointed by the fact that not all the teachers had responded in a consistent way across all the subjects that this student is trying to, you know, catch up in. Um, and is that
0: in, that in secondary?
2: This is in secondary. So I work mostly in secondary at the moment. The, my face-to-face work is secondary. And um, yeah, in primary, it's kind of easier. You know, you, you might get a diagnosis of something and some really good recommendations. Um, and, and you know, those might be passed on really effectively. Um, And I just felt, you know, the mum was saying, we really thought this was going to help. We really thought this was going to make a massive difference to our daughter. And it it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, And then I've got another student that I I saw yesterday who already has a diagnosis of ADHD that she's not particularly fond of. She said, what, a, a deficit and a disorder, really? Um, and the family are really keen that she go on and pursue, well, she has been offered a CANS assessment for autism. And um, she said, you know, I could deal with one, but being given another label, that's going to really, you know, that really is going to make me feel like I'm not good enough. And it's really hard to know, you know, how to support teachers, how to support students, how to support families, because everybody wants the same thing effectively, which is, the right support for their needs, and what what we perhaps don't have yet is a broad enough strategy for identifying what those needs are that's used universally that doesn't rely on labels that have a D in them, or or you know labels that imply a massive difference because you know what we know from working with people who perhaps have a neural developmental difference to them is that actually a lot of the things they experience are the things we all experience, but maybe just to a greater degree. You know, I love that, you know, um, Mary Colley quote, I think, which is that we are a people of extremes. So, you know, anything that we, we um, that someone with autism might experience, we might experience in a different way. And when we used to go in and do autism training, we do some sort of experiential activities and people would go, oh, but you know, that's me. Does that mean I'm autistic? And I always say, no, it just means that people with autism or people who are autistic experience a lot of the same things that we do. But we don't have a framework, I think, that identifies need in that way.
0: I think diagnosis, people, I said on the podcast with Finton before, they think that is a destination. They think that is when I get this, all my problems are solved. And a diagnosis is, can be something for that person to go, Ooh, okay. So, this is part of me. Um, it might access funding, but it might not um, and also they think the expectation is, as you said, is they expect once I have this diagnosis, everything will change, and it's not it, you've still got a long way to go. yes, and I think
1: you know, I think there's a few things in there you know often, certainly from a practitioner's perspective, you know those diagnoses al- also don't necessarily help. They're often a circular redescription description of the original difficulty. So you could kind of broadly argue that dyslexia could really just be synonymous with uh, specific difficulties in 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 certain areas of literacy. Um, so, you know, very crudely, you could say, okay, difficulties with reading. So in getting that label of dyslexia, you've essentially said this child has difficulties with reading because they have difficulties with reading. It doesn't help you out necessarily in terms of what you're going to do. You've just kind of renamed it, um, but you've still got the same underlying need there, which is you need to address these difficulties um, that I've got. And as you say, it can bring some kind of self-awareness for that child or young person that they might feel, okay, I'm not a broken version of this kind of normal ideal. I'm a brilliant version of me. But that can call into broader questioning that idea of this normal that perseverates anyway this kind of non-existent normal student that actually should we need a label to help us justify being ourselves why can we not just be ourselves you know it's knowing somebody by their name not by their label that i think that there's difficulties in there and i think again it goes back to some of those universals and i think one thing claire and i are always really keen to point out is obviously you know, when we talk about difference and, and how we all experience similar difficulties, we're not trying to to devalue or downplay the genuine uh, difficulties that individuals um, with uh, different ways of seeing the world experience. So, you know, if I can say here, and autism is always the kind of prototypical one of saying, oh, we're all a little bit autistic. And what that can do is to kind of devalue and be and actual difficulties of an autistic person experiences in the world. So uh, we really want to be clear that that's not what we're saying here, we're, but we're talking about the kind of fundamental difficulties that we experience can be similar. The differences we have are in terms of the extent to which we experience them and our capacity to handle them. And those are defined both by inter-intrapersonal factors and also importantly by the environments that we find ourselves in. And again, in our work with schools and practitioners, that's what we often focus on because that's something we have control over. And that's something that we can address is those environments and and making them more inclusive by design. I think another kind of point around those kind of labels is that they can often kind of restrict ways of kind of conceptualizing or responding to difference because they might come with these kind of presuppositions around okay well ma'am a child with dyslexia can do this but can't do this and you almost get this kind of prescription of support oh if you've got an autistic student you take two social skills sessions one lego therapy uh, and and one of these and then they're they're great You know, so it's almost one of the biggest risks with a diagnosis is loss of meaning. Well, what does it mean for me in this setting, in this situation, in this community, in my family, how I currently am at this age? What's the impact uh, of kind of my different way of thinking on the environment I find myself in? And it's sort of trying to, again, get back to that. And for that, to understand that, you don't necessarily need that label attached to it. And I think Claire's and I think Claire's point there around, I think we are seeing an increase in pupils. I mean, it's only anecdotal, but I think we are seeing an increase in pupils getting multiple diagnoses. So Claire's example there of ADHD and autism. And what that is also potentially highlighting is, is the kind of lessening of the utility of those labels in helping us understand an individual. Because we're having to pull more and more labels in to try to capture the unique profile of this individual. We're trying to say, okay, they've got this and they've got this and they've got this, but what about they're just them? And let's look at that.
0: So I, I think, um, on a previous podcast about diagnosis, I think, um, I think it was DSM one. you couldn't have, um, medically, you couldn't have autism and ADHD. Apparently someone decided somewhere this couldn't happen. Uh, and it's just like going, that's, you can't just decide that you can't. People are people. Um, they could be a mixture of five of them. It could be all of them. It could be one of them. It could be, it's just kind of it's ways of describing, but as you said, Jamie, um, if I, if this person has autism or this person dyslexia, I've decided now from that label, what is wrong with them? What is support? And if there's something over there, well, no, they won't have that. I've got to support dyslexia and you support a, a, a diagnosis. You don't support the child.
1: And it can lead to situations where you, you potentially get diagnostic overshadowing, so you get a single diagnosis that then overshadows anything else. And that was that point around autism and ADHD. So in the previous diagnostic manual, you couldn't have both autism one; it was greedy to have anything other than that. You were only allowed that one thing. The the, the recent manual did sort of change that and did sort of let you have ha, have them both. But I think, very kind, yes. Um, but I think. Again, there is that risk that potentially we do do then kind of have that diagnostic overshadowing and also pathologizing of saying, and again, example from autism, you know, that that's autistic behavior. There's no such thing as it's just behavior that a human's displaying as a result of something. You know, all behavior is the same, it's an action in response to a cause. And I think by, by labeling it as that, you're almost then again sort of patting yourself on the back and go yeah i understood what that behavior is it's autistic behavior but you haven't understand understood okay where's that coming from and trying to you know look past that and trying to empathize and go back to that kind of universal and say okay you know what might i be experiencing in that situation it's trying to do that and trying to almost just counter against that kind of barrier that a label might put up in terms of our perception of our ability to empathize, of recognizing, okay, yes, I'm not an autistic person, but I'm a person and I've been scared, I've been confused, I've been excited, I've been happy, and I can therefore try to kind of use that to relate to somebody else. Otherwise, we kind of end up in this kind of, very kind of hermeneutic, situation where we can only understand ourselves and nobody else. Um, Whereas I think, again, it's embracing that universality, but not forgetting our diversity within that. You know, it's almost the sort of, the thing that unites us all is the fact that we're all a bit different.
2: I have a great deal of sympathy for teachers in all of this. And, And I think the problems come when we try to summarize things. You know, that's what these labels are. They're a summary of some of the potential difficulties somebody might have. And the other issue I have, especially at the moment, is that the assessments don't um, put enough emphasis on the positive attributes that that also might come. (laughs) You know, if you're going to generalize about The not so good stuff. Can we please generalize about some of the advantages that hyper focus might bring or, you know, um, increased empathy, you know, over empathizing, if you want to call it that. Um, But I do have a great deal of sympathy for teachers because they need if you've got a big class with all these different needs, you do need some kind of shorthand. I mean, I liken it to women's dress sizes, which I realize may not sound. Totally relevant. But, you know, as a woman, you go into a shop and men don't seem to have this in the same way, can I just say? You go into a shop and the, the clothes will be sized, you know, six, eight, 10, 14, whatever. And by picking up um, a piece of clothing in what you think is your size, it doesn't actually tell you a great deal. It doesn't tell you what, what chest size, hip size, whatever it's going to be. It gives you a vague approximation of what you might expect. Um, and teachers kind of need that. So I, I totally get why teachers particularly are keen for students to get a diagnosis. I think there's lots in there. I think it's, you know, I really struggle to teach this student. And I want to know that it's partly the difference in them that's causing my difficulties. And I think it brings them a lot of certainty. Um, but I just, you know, I, we write a bit about... Um, UDL, Universal Design for Learning, in our book, which is this, this most phenomenal structure for preparing every lesson and every environment as if you're going to have a huge diversity of learners walk into it. And it's a really phenomenal resource, but we don't see it in schools. We don't see people preparing every lesson as if, you know, you could have three students who are with dyslexia, three autistic students, two people with ADHD. We see uh, teachers, and they have a lot on their plate. You know, designing lessons for that that straight ahead, straight ahead student, as I sometimes call it, um, and everything else can be a bit of a surprise, and a bit of a shock, and a bit of a. But now I need to change the way I work, and it would just be fantastic. And I realize it's a little bit of a pipe dream, but I look at some uh, classroom setups in the states. And I don't know if you've, you've had a look, but if you look up UDL Classroom USA and look and go to images, we see these phenomenal classrooms where there might be some low tables at the front with some nice um, cushions, and some students will choose to work there. You might have some sofas, you might have some beanbags at the sides. You'll have standing desks at the back, and then in between you'll have what we think of as a typical secondary school classroom desk, and it means that students, in terms of their sort of sensory needs, can choose the way they prefer to sit. and And I go into classrooms sometimes, and I have teachers getting really upset about teachers uh, students who sit with one knee up. You know what I mean, with one foot on the chair and their knee bent. Um, and they'll be making them sit properly with both feet on the floor. And what I know from the students I talk to, and and just from you know what I know about sensory processing. For some students, that's really helping them learn. It's giving them more proprioceptive feedback, if you like, and and they're able to then feel a little bit more just right and get on with the lesson. Um, so I feel for teachers, but I wish there was a, a broader way of looking at things and preparing environments and lessons.
0: So I, I do some training with work where I have to go and sit in a classroom for 12 hours a day, seven days a week, Every couple of years, I go and do one of these courses, and it's really intense. And you'd think that I'd be there, face down, no, I am horizontal, I'm kicking back, I'm often leaning back on my chair, I am. and I was at school, I was the same, I was that child who looked like I was not paying attention. And the reality was, is in those lessons, half of my brain is listening to you, another part of my brain is working, how am I going to use this? And generally, if I couldn't work it out, then my other part kind of went, I'm not even that interested. And another heart, part was going, okay, why are these lights in a pattern of three by three? Um, so, but I was relaxed and I was listening and I was taking it in and I stood it out. And, and I was often called many things by teachers, but I took it in and I did really well on my tests. So it obviously worked for me, but I, I never conformed. And I would probably, in that situation, I would sit on a sofa. I would have an iPad out. There'd be no paper near me. I could literally walk into that classroom with an iPad, nothing else. And I would do really well because I was comfy. I could make my notes. That would sync up to my, it's the way I worked. But for someone else, they'd be there at that table writing notes very studiously because that made them comfortable. It made them like they were conforming or whatever. And someone else, and it is, we, schools need to kind of accept, but it is, I think we are at the moment, It is a bit of a pipe dream. I don't think, I think it's closer with COVID. I think so many people have gone, actually, we aren't that behind or in this, or some children aren't behind, some children exactly where they should be. Some children have struggled. Some people have thrived. We really should be taking something from this and going, perhaps there is a better way.
1: I absolutely agree. And I think in in terms of, you know, the potential benefits to come out of it, it would be saying that we have had to be more flexible in the way that we teach. We have had to give up a bit of control in a way. And I think, you know, Claire's point that, you know, so whenever any of us are facing a kind of uncertainty or something we're not sure about, what you then get is a kind of exaggerated need for control because that can kind of help us manage that. And if you look in classrooms, sometimes you'll see that, um, from a teacher that I might need that kind of control, then that might be because of broader uncertainties around kind of how will my senior leadership team view it and um, if I don't do this or don't do that. And therefore, I'm feeling that pressure and that manifests itself in this need for a kind of really rigid structure that everybody's doing exactly this, because that makes me then, helps me to manage that. Whereas I think what hopefully this has shown is some more flexible approaches to learning that we've had kids learning in different environments. You know, some kids doing that learning from home would have been lying on their beds, others sitting on the kitchen table, some under a tree, you know, all sorts of things to highlight the fact that children can learn in different ways in different environments. And I think for us to allow that sort of flexibility within a classroom, it means everybody's got to be comfortable, in giving up a bit more control and we need to have more trust. So it starts right from the bottom and goes to the top. So as a teacher, I need to give more control to my students. I need to trust them to choose to sit somewhere that'll work well for them. I need to trust them to choose a partner to sit with to do this piece of work that will work best for them. I need to trust them to choose the best way to demonstrate their knowledge and understanding in this topic. And then for me as a teacher, I need to be given more control by my management team to be able to assess students in slightly different ways, to be able to maybe set my classroom up slightly differently, to be able to kind of maybe tweak the way that I'm presenting information there. And then kind of accountability organizations higher up need to then give more control to individual schools to be able to had that flexibility in terms of okay this is how we're going to report outcomes in this specific area this is what we're looking at
0: i think we have moved slowly because i remember probably eight or so years ago remember actually being at a conference and someone asking as a teacher where should i physically be in the classroom should i be at the front should i be in the middle what is offset expecting of me and there was this idea that there was a certain um, formula you had to have for your lesson. It's 10 minutes at the front, 20 minutes in the middle, all this. And, and Ofsted are going, no, it's whatever works for you. So uh, there is this freedom. But I think a lot of people are very scared of making a change if no one else. They want someone to lead on it. They want Ofsted to say, put sofas in your classroom. Everyone go and order a sofa. You want the government to say, I think you should have so Everyone go and do it. But until they are told to, they will not be that confident. Even if they think it's the right thing, it's that confidence. And as you said, Jamie, it's that pressure from above.
1: Uh, and I think you, you're right. That, that is sort of coming in. We've seen it certainly around assessment and much more freedom being given. And and then with the kind of um, use of the engagement model and uh, now for uh, people's learning below kind of national curriculum levels, I think a lot of staff are really surprised that, oh, so what, we don't have to report any data? We can just report or who's using it, and we can, we've got that freedom. I think it's almost, you know, the teachers aren't necessarily used to being validated as a professional. They're not used to being somebody saying to them, actually, we realize that this is your profession. It is a profession. You are a professional here and an expert, and actually, you're allowed to do this. So I think it's almost, you've had that initial kind of slack. But I think because teachers have been so used to being kind of told what to do and, 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 and sanctioned if they move off that, that it might take a little bit of while for that kind of freedom to find its way into the classroom. And I also think more broadly, you know, too much freedom can also be scary. And that's why systems like uh, Universal Design for Learning that Claire mentioned are so fantastic because it provides... A framework, but it's a framework that supports flexibility. So you've got that kind of best of both worlds. You've got that idea of focusing on having, okay, multiple means of representing information, multiple ways of engaging children and young people, and multiple ways in which children and young people can demonstrate their knowledge and understanding. So you've kind of got still a kind of little bit of structure in there. But it's built around flexibility. And and Claire's point, it starts from the position of saying you're going to have variability in your classroom. It's not going to be extraordinary to have a student who learns like this or a student who learns like this because that's what humans are. And broader kind of points around kind of if your classroom is set up exactly the same as it was last year, you're assuming you're getting the same 30 children, but you're not going to. They're going to be different. They're going to have different things that engage them. There's going to be different things that are – culturally relevant to them and you need to understand that to make the learning authentic so your point dale when you were saying you know part of my brain was trying to think okay how could i use this you know that's kind of what it goes back to is making it authentic and i think oftentimes again because of previous prescriptive curricula teachers themselves will be sitting there trying to work out why am i teaching these guys about the victorians what And if I don't understand why I'm doing it, it's going to be really hard for a child to kind of buy into that too.
2: I think in all this, what we're trying to do is, I mean, I see a lot of students who struggle with their mental health as a result of having felt different. And I think in all this, what's really important to remember is that we want to make difference. We want to normalize it. You know, we want to apply it to ourselves. We want to recognize all these differences. And we want to say, you know, it's okay. And it, and it can be a really brilliant thing. And we want to say that in everything we do. And, you know, Neurodiversity Celebration Week is a fantastic thing because it does, you know, bring it, bring it to the fore, if you like. But in a way, we need to be saying it in every lesson. We need to be saying, some of you might want to do this as a mind map. Some of you might want to do it as a grid some of you might want to do it as a cartoon you know and that that's a question of freeing up students recognizing difference recognizing that in order to do things at your very best ability you just might need a different way there and i think it it teaches everybody in that classroom how to appreciate difference because i think it's something that isn't necessarily happening and i think the teenage years are particularly tricky for this because everybody's got that heightened sense of being the same being different do i fit do i not fit you know and i talk about it as you know in terms of evolutionary science you know we're leaving our family cave and we're working out which tribe we're going to join and that's why we are so super sensitive to all of this and it's why we are questioning ourselves so much more and why we're judging other people and i think we we need to lead on this as the adults in the situation by celebrating difference all the time and pointing out how yeah people might need different strategies or different ways to get there but everybody can and how brilliant to watch someone get to the same point as you but doing it a completely different way and i think you know we need to give that message really clearly
1: and i think that you know if we have that kind of focus on on you know it it's normal to be different i think will help address some of these issues around labeling. And and I I think it can begin with just critically interrogating those labels when they arrive on our desk in the form of a kind of report that we're kind of given because yes, they are kind of descriptive. They do provide potentially a kind of shortcut, but they also act to kind of constitute and then limit who a student is. And we've mentioned already that deficit focus. So, you know, autistic pupils have a disorder. ADHD deficit and disorder, and what that does is it presupposes that there's a norm that you're disordered from. So in order to have a disorder, there needs to be some order that you are not part of. And these then sort of temporary constructs that we currently utilize that, you know, predominantly the cutoff point for these labels is is politically and socially defined as opposed to having a hard empirical cutoff point. It's why it's so subjective around these kind of definitions. And and currently this is where we put that kind of line. But they generate these their norms around expectations and identities. So so what's a normal pupil? And I think what we see is an increasing number of pupils being situated outside of this kind of normative construction of education, you know, in the next sort of three or four years, we're projected to have kind of a fifth to a quarter of pupils with with an SEM. So we're kind of identifying this increasing number of pupils are are being highlighted as being kind of not normal. And at what point do do we shine a light back on the environment and say, actually, how, how are we creating an environment that these children don't belong to?
0: And the thing is there is we're saying, I read the article today, I think it was on Twitter, I saw it, up to 25% are going to be diagnosed with SEN. And SEN immediately is behind, delayed, bad, the bottom. But actually, it can be a different way. And that's the thing is, is it's basically showing that more people are happier learning in a different way than what is currently being provided. Is there's a behind, but there's also this other ADHD, the ASD pupils who, and my nephews have ASD, and some of the what the knowledge in some areas is just immense, and in other bits, socially awkward and things like that, and doesn't he? And and it's, but I wouldn't say he's socially awkward. He's just um, I'm bored now. I finished my lunch. We're in a restaurant. So why are we still here? So it's not. It's just he's got his own priorities.
1: Yeah. And if you look at that kind of SEN idea, it's around you know children and young people who require something that's different to or additional to that which is given to everybody else. So we should be then looking at it and saying, well, we've got this many people that need something different to what we're providing. We need to be providing something better because we need to kind of be looking at this increasingly narrow focus that we've got within schools that in secondary and now increasingly in primary. That's constraining teachers' ability to kind of offer a kind of broader curricula that allows children to demonstrate knowledge and ability in other areas. We've got this increasingly narrow construction of kind of what constitutes this kind of normal pupil. And alongside this kind of focus on labels, what tends to happen is the issue tends to be located within the child. We tend to kind of focus on um the kind of psychomedical deficit that this child has and that's why there's a problem there you know we try and tie it to various aspects of their brain and say this is what's going on here it's not the right place for them instead of saying well who's it the right place for who have we actually designed this school for let's take a step back because if it's not for the children in our local community what's gone wrong have we designed this school for a white middle class child from the 1950s, because that's not who's currently coming into our school. So it's looking at that environment we've created, which is an increasingly exclusionary space. And rather than looking at the poor fit of the child, we need to look at the environment. And that's the way, therefore, that those unique attributes that you were just sort of mentioning there, you know, instead of them being reframed as inadequacies as a consequence of this unachievable endeavor to teach this non-existent normal student instead those unique attributes can be recognized as those different ways of seeing the world that are just as valid as any others as soon as we give up on this pursuit of that non-existent normal student
2: I just wanted to ask you, Jamie, because I know you are more in the world of teacher training than I am. And I wanted to ask you how you think things are looking there at the moment, given that we're projected to have 25 percent of every classroom learning differently.
1: So I think in terms of, of that, it's getting better. Um, I know there's kind of moves within the early career framework as, as well to kind of look at uh, inclusion by design and recognising different ways of thinking and different ways of learning. Um, you know. Certainly, when I first started out, I was invited by a kind of quite a large university to deliver their SEN training for their secondary um, PGC cohort, um, and it was 45 minutes was all that they received. So I think one of the things, though, that's really important is that we don't overly focus on those individual labels again. That we don't say, okay, now as part of your initial teacher training, you're going to have a session on dyslexia, a session on ADHD, a session on autism, a special session on speech language communication needs. I, I think it's important we don't silo that. And then again, have that focus on need for diagnosis. I think it's again, looking at those universals and saying, look, you're going to get children, young people who learn differently, who understand uh, things differently. And really, that focus on understanding the individual, knowing the students in front of you. What are the things they find interesting? What ways do they find work best for them in terms of learning? Um, And, you know, depending on the level of the need of the student, you could engage students. You know, we talk, you know, Claire, you, you always talk about doing a questionnaire with students at the start of each year, you know, finding out what do they enjoy in school? What do they enjoy outside of school? What's their best way of learning? What would their best day in school look like? Um, Where do they like learning? How do they like asking for help? All of those really nice kind of prompts that then gives you an understanding, okay, how this class learns and understands. So more than just that recognition of individual need, uh, individual diagnoses, that broader focus on, look, having a kind of inclusion by design approach is immediately going to kind of mitigate some of the difficulties that pupils might have before they get there. So that crude analogy around kind of physical disabilities, you know, it's about building a ramp in your classroom before somebody needs that ramp. It's expecting that you're going to get different ways of seeing the world, different ways of understanding the world. And if we want to create an inclusive environment where they've got that sense of belonging, I want to come to a space that's preemptively designed for me. And I think rather than retrofitting differentiation, which I I think often is a focus on on CPD around SCM, it's around differentiation, and it certainly has a place. But what we should look at is every time we differentiate, what we've got is a child who said to us, hey, there's a barrier here. And we need to be looking at that saying, right, could I remove this so that next year, a student that might have similar needs doesn't encounter that barrier because I've already addressed it. And what that also tells that student is this environment was built for you. Because every time we're retrofitting differentiation, we're essentially saying, hey, when I plan this lesson, I didn't plan it for you. You are kind of afterthought for me. You know, and it's not creating that sense of belonging because ultimately that classroom is the children's classroom it needs to be set up to meet their ways of learning and understanding. And it's that old adage of, you know, if you can't learn the way that I teach, it's my job to teach the way that you learn. And it's therefore looking at our classroom and saying, is this their space? Because it has to be their space. And that points to those ideas that Claire was talking about earlier, you know, around how we set up the room, there's some sofas, things like that. You know, you look at kids at home, if, if you've got kids, You know, when they want to engage with something, they don't necessarily sit at the table quietly there looking at it. They might be hanging off backwards over something, you know, tucked away in a corner underneath something, you know, all over the place. And so it's recognizing that and looking at that focus on universal variability, you know, saying to initial teacher trainers, look, you have no normal pupil. You cannot have a kind of set lesson plan that's going to work year on year on year on year. Your first job is to know your students and that's your skill. You know, the core of teaching is is empathy, passion, creativity. You know, those are the kind of skills. That's why it's this kind of vocation, because a, a lot of that can't necessarily be easily taught. But it's knowing where your children are coming from, where your students are coming from, and then sort of building a learning environment for them. It's its almost highlighting that really one of your jobs, you're a learning engineer. You're creating a structure, an environment where learning can happen. And in a way, it goes back to that, we're kind of then giving away some of our control. We're just creating an environment where students can learn rather than trying to sort of force learning into them um, there, which is often what we resort to when we've got that kind of Uncertainty it's again that exaggerated need for control, that need for agency. That's why I'm going to focus on this. Um, there.
0: So, um, somebody who used to work for us uh, went off to become a teacher and she studied at university and she did a full teaching degree, but she'd come back to us every so often. And after the second year, I was like, Right, how much stuff have you done around SEN? And she went, There was an optional module. And not many people took it. That was it. So two years, she hasn't covered. And I'm not saying she's on a session on this, but she literally is that typical child which doesn't exist anymore that she's learning about.
1: Absolutely, And I think even having that kind of optional module almost reiterates that it's a, it's a kind of small aspect. You know, Don't worry got, about yeah, it. Yeah, you've just got those little group there Whereas if it's embedded into every aspect of teaching, so when I'm learning about my subject-specific learning, I'm learning, okay, now think of different ways you can represent this information. Think about not saying this is explicitly your SEN and how you teach an SEN student. It's saying just as your practice is using those inclusion-by-design principles. And that's just how you teach. And it goes back to that idea of kind of inclusive teaching and high-quality teaching are, are synonymous. You can't have one without the other. And so rather than this sort of um, add-on, it's embedded in everything in much the same way that all the rhetoric around inclusion more broadly says it has to be embedded into everything, it not it's sitting as a kind of discrete policy around inclusion or, or whatever it might be. It needs to be embedded in, in everything that we do. And again, that idea of kind of, you know, that we've got ramps, built into our school, everywhere. It's part of the fabric of this environment that we recognize variability in all our learners and we teach accordingly. And in that way, you're going to reduce the number of children and young people who require something that's additional to or different from everybody else. And you're going to be reducing, therefore, those children and young people that might be identified as having a need. and you know, the SEN code of practice, it's not a particularly radical position. The code of practice itself does stress that the purpose of identification is not to fit a pupil into a category. It's to work out what action the school needs to take. It, it actually says it's hidden away, <laughs> but it actually says that. It says, you know, so what do we need to do? It, it asks us to shine a light back onto our environment and say, okay, what do we need to do here as i said before it's every time we've got one of those students who's struggling to access the learning how i'm currently presenting it it's an opportunity for me to improve learning for everyone to say great actually this way of helping you out is more than likely going to benefit everybody and now that's going to become part of my teaching and then over time You're going to build
2: that environment. You're going to erode those steps. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the changes that came about from COVID, Dale, because I think there are some real reasons for optimism in all of this and to think that, you know, the kind of thing Jamie's describing, uh, there's a real opportunity, I think, with the changes that have happened. I'm thinking about the way students have been assessed in secondary particularly, which is that a lot of the students I work with really struggle with memory they have a really good understanding of the um, concepts and some of the a lot of the content that they're learning. But they find it really hard to recall that in an exam setting. And schools have dealt with it in all sorts of different ways. Um, but a lot of them have broken down these big exams into much smaller parcels. And students have had really explicit instructions on, you know, this is the section we're going to be testing you on this week. They've also had an opportunity to do more than one assessment, which meant that week on week, for those of them that struggle with anxiety, it's perfect exposure therapy, basically. It's like, do a small exam. How was that? That was quite stressful. Okay, you're going to do it again next week and for the week after. And as long as they could deal with the fatigue, so many of them, when I've asked them, have said, oh, yeah. I mean, it was not ideal, but so much better than the way we were doing it before. And I think we are teaching to the 1950s. I really struggle with why we're – it's a slightly different off-the-point topic, obviously, but why are we asking kids to learn so much when they've got it all on their phone? You know, if they need facts, they, they've got them there. We have access to information. What we need to be teaching is how you access it, how you evaluate it, and how you incorporate it and and use it in, in, in everything you do. And I'm just baffled as to why that hasn't – Maybe it has, maybe it has started and I've missed it, but I just, I don't see it. And I think, we're I taking, see, yeah.
0: I think exams were created in Cambridge in 1800 and something as and it's basically it's a quick way of assessing knowledge. Yeah. Completely happy, understand that where we are now, in the 50s, you needed to know that in your head because you didn't have your phone on, you didn't have your computer and go, oh, what is the tensile strength of a piece of steel measuring this size? cool. You had to know it. You had to, we're now in a situation where I'll have one monitor with what I'm doing. I'll have another monitor with a YouTube video. <laughs> so generally you'll learn through YouTube. You'll have the something up. So it's all about, as you said, those skills and having to learn all this knowledge about all this stuff. It's kind of stuck in the pre-internet, pre-digital era.
1: And I think you he- talks more broadly about that authenticity in learning So making it authentic for kids currently today. It, it speaks again to, you know, how do we manage uncertainty? Well, we stick to certainty. So, okay, this is the way I did it. This is the way it's always be So I'm going to go and just do that because it at least kind of gives me something to kind of play on. And I think Claire's point there, though, around kind of assessment more broadly, again, speaks to kind of ideas that we can think about in our classroom And again, sort of a UDL type perspective, that we need to be really confident in what's our actual learning objective. Because too often the learning objective becomes conflated with the means for demonstrating my learning. So a lot of the assessments that we're using are not actually valid assessments in terms of giving me an accurate picture of what I want to know. Quite often, that assessment will also be assessing something that's not really subject to the assessment. So confidence in writing, confidence in spelling, um, you know, my ability to manage pressurized situations. That's not actually what I want. It might be sometimes, but most of the time, that's not really what I want to know. I want to know, do you understand how to construct a narrative? Well, if that's the case, you don't have to do it written down. You can demonstrate that to me through a comic, through a PowerPoint, through a YouTube video. Uh, And that's going to be more relevant to you. And that's also going to give me a more accurate representation of what I'm looking for, because I haven't created an additional barrier to you demonstrating your knowledge through the way in which I'm asking you to demonstrate your knowledge. So I think, again, it comes back to us being really confident in, okay, what am I actually trying to teach in this? If I'm confident in that... And I've got that clear. I know, therefore, there's flexibility in how I get there. That, you know, a child could use a YouTube video, could use, um, do a podcast, um, to, demonst- to, to demonstrate that. And I think the other thing about that is you think, oh, God, well, I'm going to need to teach them how to do these things. You're not. Children young people in, gravitate towards the thing that they've got the most confidence in, towards the thing that they are interested in. They're probably all making YouTube videos anyway with incredible, crazy production value um, at home. So again, it makes it authentic, makes it relevant, and gives you an accurate representation of, okay, do they know how to construct a narrative? That is generally what I'm looking at here. But again, it requires that sort of trust and flexibility across all of those areas that we talked about earlier.
0: And to be able to do that, to be able to learn to that production value, your that child has learned a lot of skills, and that might be one of the children who are disruptive, or they they they're not very good at this, or they're not very good at that. Yet they'll be able to go away and that. So it's like, is it they're not good, or is it they're not good in the way you've asked them to demonstrate?
2: Sorry, I just want to cut in and and say I'm glad Jamie mentioned the questionnaires because I think sometimes teachers would love to do all of this, but without somebody asking them, oh, oh. oh. Going through it with them, it can feel really scary. And I think, you know, the questionnaires in our book, we haven't mentioned our book. Can we quickly do that?
0: Yeah, mention your book. (laughs) Okay.
2: So we've we've put a lot of these ideas into our, our book, which is called The Anxiety Workbook for Supporting Teens Who Learn Differently snappy title. Um, And in there are a load of questionnaires that I use at the start of my groups and I encourage teachers to use them. And literally in five minutes, you can get so much information about a student that might help you know what, what options to offer. You know, it might help you think of, well, if I've got to give an example or I'm using a metaphor to describe something, what subjects am I going to draw on? Am I going to talk about skating? Am I going to talk about, you know, say everyone's really into Taylor Swift? You know, or it it just gives you kind of material that you can bring into your lessons to keep that engagement going. And it's really not a hard thing to do and you can use it as a kind of presentation session where students then maybe share a few things from their questionnaire as you go through the topics which you know is a confidence in public speaking or you know learning to manage anxiety you can use them but I think you know it's knowing where to start sometimes for teachers who've been if you like brought up in that very kind of narrow model and again I do think we base an awful lot on the teaching that we received if we're not sure where to go and and I think, uh, you know, simple things like that, which we hope will make some kind of difference and give teachers, a, empower teachers to, to do all of this. Because if it's in a book, it's kind of, well, you can always show that, can't you, to the, the person who's coming to observe you and say, well, look, I've taken this idea from this. It's all evidence based, backed up by, you know, science and research and everything.
0: Yes. I could have gone on so many tangents with you two, and I'm going to indulge on this one. Um, So, you talked about it's a teaching I had. And me and my sister talk about our childhood. Why aren't our children going out? When we were young, we went out all the time, literally. We went out in July. We came back for the start of school. We were a feral for an entire month type thing. You talk about this, and you're going, I pointed out to my sister, it's like, yeah, but we only had three channels. We were four channels. Your children's programs, happened on a saturday morning between half six and half ten and then there'll be some family program at half five if you want to watch tv after that you must like horse racing and golf or the news or something else and generally it was just like that so you couldn't stay in and watch tv so you went out and found something but the internet has given us a world where there is an infinite amount of interest in the palm of your hand and i think when teachers and when we all sit there and go, well, why is my child on there? Or why are they doing that? Or I find the phone distracting. We always try and put ourselves and how we deal with technology. But the difference is this phone and the smartness of it for me came along when I was into the third <laughs> decade of my life. So I've, I've learned how to bring this into my life. I've learned what I was really bad at. That I was actually really negative, And I've spent time improving that and other stuff. Whereas actually as children, it's like, I have a pencil, I have a ruler, I have a smartphone. It's not a distraction. It's a very powerful tool. And I am very glad that my daughter's secondary school um, has actually embraced tech more since COVID. So he's written something on the board. Take a photo of it. Don't spend 10 minutes writing it down because that's a waste of time for everyone. Just take a photo of it. They play Kahoot games. To test knowledge as a nice quick. So actually realizing actually these phones are very powerful because tech has saved education over the last 18 months. So keep embracing it. Stop saying ban phones, ban tech, because that is not what happens the moment you leave school. Your life is going to be led by tech. If you're a plumber, you're there checking, do they have the bit I need in Wix? Which Wix has it in stock? Where am I? You don't drive around for three hours trying to work out where that part is. You're going to get your phone out and stock check and reserve in your palm of your hand.
1: And that's why I think, again, that freedom around demonstrating knowledge. Students can utilize those things. And actually, we can learn. You can learn as a teacher. If they demonstrate it to you using a program piece of software, piece of technology, you're like, okay, great. that So that exists. And I now understand that. And it, it is that sort of point around, yeah, embracing the technology, recognizing that we've all had a year, 18 months of unexpected CPD around using tech. Um, All of us are now much better at that. So let's not lose that. And I think you're right to point to those broader issues. So when we talk about literacy, for example, literacy and digital literacy for Children, young people—they're not distinct areas. Literacy is digital literacy. So, if we're focusing on students' literacy, we have to be including the digital aspect there and and teaching children and young people about that. And I think when we look at things like safeguarding, so safeguarding around the internet and particularly for children, young people, and with SEN, there's been a view to well, just keep them away from it. That's the best way to safeguard them from it. But what you're not doing there is you're not empowering me. To understand and navigate and utilize this technology, you're also then causing me not to be able to participate in the community. I'm kind of digitally isolated, whereas previously I used to be kind of physically isolated from community. It's about recognizing that and realizing and being honest and saying, okay, I might have shortcomings. I might be digitally less literate than my students. So maybe we all need some extra support there because those two worlds they don't, there's no distinction. It's the same if we look at bullying. We talk about bullying and cyberbullying. For for our children and young people, there's no distinction there. There's no social life. There's, there's no line between online and offline. It's all happening at the same time in the same situations. So it's not really necessarily something we can keep talking about in these discrete areas. And I think your point there, Dale, is a really good one. And we need to be recognizing that. And I think, again, it points to sort of Claire's. um, And I'm glad, Dale, you kind of made that point there around kind of that nostalgia around uh, how we used to have it. I think it's what we need to recognize is that the future of education, you know, are we preparing children, young people for life in the 21st century? So some of Claire's points there around, you know, is it now a question of just having to retain knowledge or is it more about? Um, how to access knowledge, how to evaluate knowledge to see whether it's trustworthy, how to disseminate your own knowledge um, in these areas. And I think, again, because of the uncertainty around the unknown in that future, we tend to stick rigidly to what we have known uh, and potentially don't move forward with that. And then in terms of kind of SEN, as I said, reiterating that point for pupils with SEN around digital literacy, And again, highlighting the need for us to also look at accessibility there. Are we ensuring that our children and young people with SCN are able to participate fully in the digital world? Um, And are there any barriers there that we can support them in terms of access? Because for children and young people today, there is no boundary between online and offline. That's just life.
0: One thing that's been interesting for us is we do assessment content at B-squared for England and Scotland and Wales. And Wales have a new curriculum coming in in September 2022, which is actually really interesting. So in Wales, they've moved away from paper-based SATs to online testing, which adapt to how that child responds. So, which is like finally, people are getting there with this. If you're getting a load of questions wrong, they're going to get simpler till you start getting them right type thing. So, it's going to get much better. But also, they're moving away from this geography and history and this. They're moving away from music and this to this to expressive arts, science and technologies, because there's a lot of overlap in these areas. And we sort of, when we have these conversations going, I know you're calling it expressive arts, but are we just not going to do music and this and this underneath? They went, no, it's expressive arts. There's different areas within. I'm like, but how are teaching staff dealing with this? Because they're saying, well, I'm a music teacher. And she is, but after like an hour of talking to them about it, they're understanding they're an expressive arts. There's those skills which transfer across, it's just a different medium for expression. So, and I like what they're doing in Wales, move away from this very subject, which can be very dry, because I don't sit at work and do, right, for the next hour and a half, I'm going to use my English work. And there's some math required in there, but I'm going to wait for an hour later. Then I'll do the math part in the thing. And then I need to work out where this is. So I'll do that itself. No, you do it all together. You do project-based. And I think we need to merge these subjects together and do a bit more subject-based. Now, we've been talking for a long time. So we need to kind of wrap it up. So I'm going to give you each a little bit to say. But for me, what I've kind of, from what you're saying is, is there are diagnoses and there's dyslexia there's ADHD there's autism and all these different labels and numbers and names you can give it all but underneath there's a you kind of there's not a universal way of supporting every child but generally there's lots of common things so they all may want and actually you can support a lot of children easily Adapting, So it's not a case of you have to do 52 different things in the classroom. You can change how you teach, do it one way, and it'll be accessible to a lot more pupils. Is that right?
1: Yes, so I mean, you can look again at the analogy of the ramp. Uh, so if I remove the stairs and put a ramp in place, that's gonna benefit everybody. Everybody can then access that. Wheelchair users, non-wheelchair users, it works for everyone. And it's the same. It's looking at those kind of fundamentals, those universals, and saying, okay, what are the things that just people struggle with? And trying to address those and mitigate those as much as we can. Uh, And really just recognizing it's a journey. You know, every single student is going to demonstrate to us something new, or something that needs to change, or something that's different. And it's about then looking at that, and rather than seeing it as an isolated thing, and taking this kind of piecemeal approach to adopting different interventions, we say, okay, this appears to be something that works for them. Can I build that in to my general teaching practice so that moving forward, the next student that might require something similar is not encountering a barrier. So for them, there is no additional need. It's already catered for. I've already got that ramp in place because a previous student pointed out to me, hey, you've got something inaccessible here, you can make it more accessible.
2: I always like to give teachers a a starting point whenever I finish one of my trainings about general support in classrooms. And what we sometimes do is a little activity where we take this idea of flexibility within a structure, literally that, and then we might work through just a few lessons. um, And each subject area as they are now, uh, might take an activity and look at where they can provide some really nice consistent structure. And then within that, where they might offer flexibility. And I'm all about the practical. And I think if I was going to you know, suggest one thing for people listening who want to really engage in this and have a go, start there. There's lots more about it in our book, but I think it's a really nice way to recognize that if we can set this up, then All these people with all these very different needs and very different attitudes to learning who have really good knowledge about themselves, if we only stop and ask, can then choose the way that suits them through all the learning that they need to do.
0: Definitely. Um, so thank you um, both of you for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed the conversation. I could have talked for another couple of hours. You have given me lots of segues I wanted to dive into, but no, I knew I really shouldn't. We would lose a lot of time. Um, you've given me some links to share, and I'm also going to find some link unless you know a really good one for that universal. Uh,
1: we we do have
0: an excellent link for that, so we will design for learning. Up. Yep. Marvellous. Um, and I'll also be sharing your contact details, including a link to your website, which is www.specialnetworks.co.uk. And I like the website. I was having a look through it last night, and there's a section where you've written, we came together to form special networks because of our shared frustrations at the increasingly fractured nature of support being offered. And it is true, you often see um, people trying to solve the one issue at a time. Oh, he's got autism, i deal with that. Oh, he's, he's got anxiety now. i best deal with that. And it's like a whack-a-mole game. Whichever pops up, you're going to hit or support. But you're just doing that. You're not going, well, what is really going on here? You're just teaching that bit which is presenting at the moment. Um, and it's important we look past that, look at the child. And it's again partly getting rid of, some of those, maybe some of those labels, but the labels, as you said, is a great shorthand way of saying stuff. Um, but it is, let's support what that child needs, not, not that one bit they're presenting on. Um, And you'll find the show notes and all the links on our website, www.thesencast.com. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find the links to subscribe across the different podcast platforms on our website, www.thesencast.com, And please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. And on Instagram, The Sendcast. And if you listen to us through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave leave us a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, I would just like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of guests on the SENDcast our speakers at our virtual SEND conferences or they've recorded their own training courses. Training for education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND. That is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to Sendcast listeners, you can get a 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And from me. Bye, everybody.